In the last episode of The Violin Chronicles, something kind of crazy happened. The bubonic plague that swept through northern Italy basically killed every violin maker. Except one, Niccolo, which made him, I suppose, the best violin maker in Italy, right? But all that aside, he was still a very talented craftsman, thankfully. So just imagine about half the people you know and don't know in your life dying in a very short space of time. There's war, famine, crazy inflation and pandemic ever looming on the horizon. This is Niccolo's life right now. Welcome to The Violin Chronicles, a podcast in which I, Linda Lespe, will attempt to bring to life the story surrounding famous, infamous, or just not very well known, but interesting violin makers of history. I'm a violin maker and restorer. I graduated from the French Violin Making School some years ago now, and I currently live and work in Sydney with my husband, Antoine, who is also a violin maker and graduate of the French school, L'École Nationale de Lutry in Mircourt. As well as being a luthier, I've always been intrigued with the history of instruments I work with, and in particular, the lives of those who made them. So often, when we look back at history, I know that I have a tendency to look at just one aspect, but here my aim is to join up the puzzle pieces and have a look at an altogether fascinating picture. So join me as I wade through tales not only of fame, famine and war, but also of love, artistic genius, revolutionary craftsmanship, determination, cunning and bravery that all have their part to play in the history of the violin. Before I start the show today, I would like to say a really big thank you to some Patreon members, Joe F, Charlotte F and Nikari K. Thank you for keeping the show happening. And if you'd like to join them, head over to patreon.com forward slash the violin chronicles to sign up. So far in this series on the Amatis, we have seen Andrea, the first big name to come from Cremona, making his mark by crafting a stunning set of instruments for the French court of Charles IX. Then the Amati brothers, who were Andrea's two sons, carry on the family workshop amidst tumultuous times. They have a fight and split the workshop. The older brother Antonio moves down the street and the younger brother Girolamo stayed on in the family workshop. His son, Niccolo, managed to survive the plague, and now here we are, in the 1630s, at the third generation of Amatis. week we find Niccolo in his workshop making, making, making violins and then he starts to change what he is doing and the decisions Niccolo makes will start to transform the landscape of the violin forever. So stay with me as we work out what these changes were and how they rocked the violin world. I 
speak to Benjamin Hebert, expert dealer and author in Oxford. Normally when we, we talk about Amati, often people are actually referring to Nicolo Amati. Why do you think he's so important and why and how is he different from the others? Well, I think the amazing thing about all of the Amatis is how things change. And you would have thought that once once you've sort of set upon something like this, at least, you know, decade to decade, you'd have, you know, very, very little change. But when you look at Cremonese instruments, you know, even two instruments made in the same year have got some level of fundamental difference to them. And, you know, this this idea, almost like a painter, uh, you know, that their canvas might be restricted to making a violin, but, you know, a, a painter who has to paint a hundred portraits of the same king never stops being creative about each portrait. And that sort of, that, that, that sort of way you, where you seem to be with violins. Just through the seven, six, late 16th century, 17th century builds up ideas. But Niccolo in about 1630, in fact, the earliest Niccolos where he does this are uh, you know, possibly late, late 1620s, are actually ones where he's still using his, his father and his uncle's label. But he produces a grand pattern of violin. This might not seem unfam you know, unfamiliar to us now because that's what becomes the pattern or violin, you know, that's eventually what Stradivari adopts. It's what the violin in your case is. Uh, but that's that's Niccolo's improvement. Niccolo Amati is making his grand pattern violin. But what is so special about the grand pattern? So much is happening in his life and musically at this time. And up until this point, Niccolo is still using his father's and uncle's labels, the Amati brothers' label. And this is somehow very symbolic. He is still carrying on the tradition of his family, of his uncle and brother. He's not yet using his very own label, but this is about to change. I talk about difference, but with Andrea Amati, I know we're talking about Niccolo here. Uh, Andrea Marti, everything is mathematical. He figures out the inside of the instrument as based on this geometry, on, on uh, what we call catenary curves, the arching, and he figures out the outside as curtate cycloids, which fit around that. The scrolls are absolutely perfect Fibonacci sequence. Scrolls like an ammonite, you know, everything's perfection. And I think as that travels through until the 1620s, everything is fixed on the idea of the violin, the Cremonese violin being an orchestral violin. And therefore you can't, you can't get away from that design which becomes bigger or smaller. So Niccolo's grand pattern. To start with, if you can remember back to the episodes on Andrea Amati, we spoke about his order of instruments for Charles IX. In this order, there were first and second violins, violas and cellos. Now, the first violins are smaller than what we would today consider a full-sized instrument, and the second violins are what Niccolo based his grand pattern on, and today is what we call a standard full-sized violin. 
There are still some of these smaller sized amatis that we come across in the workshop from time to time. These are lent to very talented children and are considered seven eighths or three quarters. But it is interesting to note that these were not children's instruments, just a smaller model of violin. So the sizes of these violins, I'll start with the first violins, the little one. Their body, their back length is 342 millimeters. That's 13.5 inches for the for my lovely American listeners. And for the larger violins, they're 355 millimeters, so 14 inches. And that's your standard violin today. So I just want to say that I realized that a lot of you listeners are actually American and I've been using meters and millimeters and kilometers. So I'm sorry, I'm going to try and put in some imperial measurements for you. So why did Niccolo make his grand pattern violin? What was wrong with the model Andrea had developed and had been working perfectly well up until now? Probably because of the sonatas, which the solo sonatas, which are appearing in in Venice and Rome in particular in the 1620s, the idea of having a more solo voice for the for the violin emerges. And really what Niccolo does is he says, well, this isn't so important. Sometimes we can make a violin wider and that will have a miraculous effect on how the bridge is supported by, by the arching. And that will create something which actually has a much, a much broader voice, something which is profoundly different. He's working with all the same ideas, which, you know, which is inherited from 50 years beforehand. And by, but he's actually the first person he's able to, and I, sus- I suspect because the musicians are asking him to, to make the modern violin, the, the, the modern full-size violin, which is wider and based on the second violin, because they seem to prefer second violins to first violins. We all do. (laughs) Sure, Ben. So here we have it, the modern violin. grand patterns are the things which are absolutely wonderful which happened from the 1620s right the way through to his death in 1684 and with increasing interest so by the 1660s that's almost all that he's making For some reason, Niccolò survived the plague but now being the head of the family he had many responsibilities looking after the various widowed and orphaned members of the clan, running a business and a household. All this under the burden of grief and the economy at a standstill. Now famine and disease were sweeping through the countryside, decimating the population yet again. And if that wasn't bad enough, the occasional army would tramp through the city wanting to cross the Po on Cremona's convenient pontoon bridge, stripping the town of any supplies they had. It was hard, to say the least, for everyone, and the violin trade would definitely have suffered. In these years, Niccolò would do anything he could just to get by. Today, we have instruments made by Niccolò during these years. They include violins, cellos and gambas, all beautifully crafted. (laughs) 
While the city he lived in was being ruined by this disease that would wipe out half its population, Niccolo and his family managed to survive. After the initial crisis of the plague and the subsequent famine that followed, Cremona with its fertile countrysides and the city were all solitude and desert. Agriculture was abandoned and fields left uncultivated. The wealthiest citizens were able to avoid taxation and were not obliged to house soldiers garrisoned in the area. The tax collectors were sucking the farming peasants dry and their productivity was diminishing. In 1635, there are many houses in the city not lived in or abandoned. People started destroying their houses to make money selling the raw materials and the Podesta ordered a fine of 500 scudi to anyone who deliberately destroyed their house and implemented corporal punishment to stop the slow destruction of the city's buildings. In a matter of months, Cremona had lost almost half its inhabitants. They were left with the skeleton of a city. One person describing it as a spectacle of nothing but horror, squalor, misery and crime. The fields were deserted and agriculture was abandoned, as were many of the buildings in the city. From this collapse, Cremona very slowly recovered, never fully reaching her former glory. Its population basically stagnated for over a century, but this does not mean that it was an unsuccessful city. Despite all this tragedy, a glimmer of hope existed. The plague of 1630 had not only wiped out most of Niccolo's family, it had also killed all of his competition in Brescia and everywhere else. The Brescian violin-making tradition came to an abrupt end with the death of Giovanni Paolo Magini, the brilliant student of Gasparo da Salo. Cities such as Milan, Genoa and Naples lost as much as half of their populations. But if you wanted one of those oh-so-desirable Italian violins, Niccolo Amati was your man. Literally, he was like the only guy left. After the effects of the plague had died down, business had come back slowly. People were obviously more concerned with avoiding starvation than music and buying musical instruments. Orders for luxury items such as Cremonizzi violins were not the top of the list for noblemen and rich families. But judging by the surviving instruments, the output of the Amati workshop was quite substantial in the 1620s and 30s. It was drastically reduced. They were the plague years. But life gradually returned to normal, and the Amatis were still the most illustrious violin workshop in Italy, and probably the world at the time. And it's in Nicola Amati's life that they have this really huge plague in the 1630s that wipes out oh, okay. basically yeah. all the Brescian makers, uh, Nicola's yeah, wow. father, his mother, some sisters, like a huge amount of family members. And then he's, he's sort of like at the end of it, he's just like they're just left with whoever's left who's survived and he has like a bunch of um, like orphaned family members that he's looking after. And surprisingly, he does make instruments this time as well. And things, I mean, and afterwards things sort of pick up. I mean, like all his competition 
has died. So if you wanted a Cremonese instrument, he's, like, he's your <laughs> he's man. He's like, he's it. Yes. <laughs> I'm Dr Emily Brasher. I'm an honorary research fellow at the University of Technology, Sydney in the School of Design. Um, I'm a fashion and costume historian and costume designer, but I also play viola. So I've definitely got an interest in the intersection of performance costume and uh, theatrical costume. Yeah, so the Great Plague of London was 1665 and 66 and that was the worst outbreak of plague in um, England, for example, since um, 1348 and, you know, London lost around 15% of its population. But what's happening at these great times of plague is that there are these incredible opportunities for social mobility for the survivors because suddenly you inherit absolutely everything or you can reinvent yourself. Um, there's a lot of material wealth left behind that you can access, can retrain and reskill. And so it's incredibly sad. And for Amati, there are even more opportunities for him that open up. Yeah, so the, in Italy, the big one, well, the big one that affected his family was the 1630 plague. Yeah. And then seven years later, you have the world's first commercial opera house in Venice that opens up. Uh-huh. So you still have this, um, it's like they hit the ground running after the plague. You know, you've got the opera still going. We're like, we're going to open a huge opera house. But interesting, in the 1629, 1630s plagues, they were trying to contain it. And in Milan, next to yes, Cremona, yes. for example, they... They quarantined the city. They, they locked it down. But then the carnival season came and they're like, oh, we'll just, we'll just open it up. Oh, gee, is that like what just happened with COVID around and the then, world, you know? And then it's just like what? that that where they opened it up and it went yeah. through. And they lost, uh, in some of the cities, they lost 50% of their population. It was just huge. It's massive, yeah. So And also at this time people, so Cremona, like we said, it was often getting 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 flattened by armies moving through. So if yes. you had money, like today we would invest in, say, property because we're not that afraid of an army coming and flattening yes. the city. But back then maybe you'd invest not – maybe you wouldn't want to invest in property maybe uh, – and then a lot of people invested in in items of value. Well, the thing is they're portable. Yeah, you can right? pick them up and you run. Can, yeah, exactly, exactly. And – you know, it's actually one of the reasons that um, for a long time in Europe, Jewish people have been associated with the violin because not only is it an item of value that you can pick up and run with, but it's also um, a way that you can support yourself and you don't need to necessarily learn the language. So, you know, you, we've, we've got these, these wonderful things so, and a particularly, you know, incredibly valuable instrument. If you have to sell it to survive, well, you've at least got something there. Things like jewellery as well. You invest in jewellery because you can pick it, take mm. it up. Uh, and Niccolo has a brother-in-law and when he dies in his will, he has several houses but also uh, um, clothes, clothing. Yeah. So that shows the the um, the value attached to clothing. Absolutely, and it was very very common for people to bequeath clothing, um, textiles, bedding as well, 
towels, linens, all of Manchester, all of these things um, would be bequeathed. Sometimes people would leave items to their servants who could then on-sell them or, uh, you know, or, or remake them for themselves as well. It's interesting that we were talking about these Catherine de' Medici productions as well because sort of around a similar time in England you've got sort of theatre, Renaissance theatre happening and a lot of the time the theatre troops would use cast-off clothing from nobility for their costumes. They'd remake that as well because of the value associated with these textiles because sometimes um, nobles would sell their clothes because they needed the money. Right. You know. It's like when you see like these really... Sometimes you get like a really wealthy person selling off all their handbags. Yeah, exactly. Exactly, the Birkin bag. The war that had caused all their hardship was still going on intermittently, but the people of Cremona just wanted to go about their daily lives, and Niccolò was no exception. In the Amati household, Niccolò was juggling, running the shop and family matters. His oldest sister, Elisabetta, and her daughter, Angela, had moved back in since her husband had passed away in the plague. Another sister, Vittoria, and her husband, Domenico, were living with them, as well as various nephews and nieces, and yet another sister, whose husband, Vincenzo, had died, leaving Niccolò to execute his will, was living with them. This turned out to be more complicated than he had imagined. Vincenzo, his deceased brother-in-law, had debts, but he also owned property, And into the mix, he owed Niccolò himself for that time he had paid to secure his release from prison. Even dead, Vincenzo was creating problems. His older sister, Vittoria, had recently married Domenico and they were living in the Amati home. Niccolò and Domenico were getting on well, and so when he offered to help in working out Vincenzo's will, this seemed like a good idea at the time. And a solution to Niccolò's problems. Things were going so well, in fact, that Niccolò and Domenico went into business together. Three years on, things were not going so well. Niccolò and Domenico could not resolve their differences to whatever problems they were having and had to call in someone to arbitrate. This ended with Domenico leaving and never returning to the Amati workshop. Elizabeth, his older sister, had to give her approval, throwing her in the middle of this family dispute. But in the end, the brothers-in-law split the business, Niccolò keeping all the items in the workshop and having to pay Domenico 600 lire, which he took his time repaying. The settlement dragged on for years. Niccolò was now the sole owner of the workshop and the family home. There was still a house full to look after, even though he was not married himself and had no children. There were siblings, nephews, nieces and small cousins to keep track of. A steady stream of instruments were leaving the workshop. More musicians were needed in orchestras as this new thing, opera, was taking off and Niccolò was as busy as ever. In 1637, the world's first commercial opera house opened in Venice, playing to thousands. 
If the violin at this point was not a gentleman's first choice of instrument, how did it get its big break? Something very interesting happened to the violin between the period of 1640 to 1660, after the Great Plague swept across Europe, that could explain why this instrument is so beloved today. Benjamin Hebert explains. What happens geopolitically is René Descartes and all of that stuff and the beginning of the Enlightenment. I mean, you know, Descartes wrote all sorts of things about music, but I think I think there might be a little a little less rigidity in what high art music is. And, you know, through Monteverdi and everything, this high art music is always sort of referential to something as it sort of frees up. And, you know, the lute and the viol with their frets, the frets are actually about reference to universal harmony and all of that kind of stuff. And I think people just chill out, really. Is, is the best way to, to put it. And part of that chilling out is, you know, th- this really is the period that dance music, you know, morphs into sonata form and all of that kind of stuff. And it's that sort of breaking down of barriers. You, I mean, there's a book in 1598 uh, by Thomas Morley, the, a plain and easy introduction to the, to the art of music. And my goodness, is it, you know, it's such a snobbish, exclusionary thing and then you know by the 1650s we're talking about england you've got playford writing you know writing very simple books saying kind of basically music for dummies so instead of this huge manual just so long as you know these things you'll be able to get away with it halfway through the 1600s the violin gains momentum and kind of takes off in europe even though around Amati, instrument makers were dropping like flies and he appears to be the only one left in his neighbourhood, the rest of Europe is producing instruments in a big way and the violin was coming into its own as a solo instrument. There was always a demand for the violin to accompany dancing and this conveniently sized instrument that was somewhat easier to tune than the viol family was coming in handy. If you're in the Renaissance, you're a humanist, you're looking at how you display your virtue. And ultimately, that's by, you know, what you're able to perform. And the lute is is very interesting for certain reasons. Because of its precision, it's almost the, the closest thing to universal harmony. And that makes it very important. Uh, because every note is about it's precise so you you put your note behind your mathematically created fret and then you play a note where because it's plucked it's there's it's very pure so it's as close to this kind of mathematical universal harmony as it can be the vial with the way that that's bowed is actually closest to the human voice so it's actually kind of an extension of your soul There's a there's an archbishop in Ireland, Narcissus Marsh, and he writes about you know Lord beseech me for loss of time in vain conversation, when he's talking about his vile playing when he was procrastinating from stopping people from killing each other. He's expressing that thing about the vile being some kind of 
utterly connected to his soul. Uh, dancing is another virtue, as we know, and but you can't do dancing without music. So the violin has always provided dance music. Then the interesting thing is, is that the better the dance music, the higher that yeah, the better the dancing will be. So in terms of your virtue, your virtue will be higher by the better dancing you do. So actually employing the we we actually get to a point where the dancing master violinist in the French court and simultaneously in the English court at the time that James I is looking for a, for a marriage for his son, you know, is actually the person who brokers the royal marriage uh, and is paid hundreds of gold coins for doing it because, because actually as that professional violinist, you know, he is of such high virtue that the dance which is performed above that is yet of higher virtue. So. So a violinist can never be the end point of virtue, ever. But there's always someone more virtuous than a violinist. By being the greatest musician that there is, that's the measure of of, of the virtue of the dance which their their music gives. So when we see this thing of they were just lowly professional musicians, it's like, yes, but on the other hand, there's a whole other side to this. And, and over and over again, we see the extraordinary status in the English court, uh, violinists, you know, who are servants of the court, they're, they're not noblemen, they're not aristocrats, and they're certainly not princes. And all servants have their place. And what the, the marking between a servant and a nobleman is that the the noblemen, the courtiers, they wear swords. And the musicians who are paid as servants wear swords as noblemen. Yeah, that, that mustn't have been comfortable to play with you. <laughs> it makes, yeah, I mean, you know. <laughs> just like, excuse me, excuse, no, just, I'm just sitting, no, yeah, just don't mind the sword. I mean, I've had bows in my face as a musician. I've had elbows in my face having having swords as a problem it's <laughs> <laughs> man you, yeah we don't realize the the problems the logistics that they had to go through with that um yeah and also um the dance masters they were like they were musicians they were you were you're a dancer often you're a fencer you uh had to be a good horseback rider it was it was a it was a whole gig yeah um, i mean you can't you can't simply be good and virtuous at one thing you have to, in order to be virtuous at one thing you have to be virtuous at all things so you know that that idea of absolute specialism you couldn't begin to specialize in one thing unless you're a, a master of many things then in 1640, 10 years after the plague had transformed Niccolo's life, he decided to invest money in a piece of land outside Cremona. Unfortunately, and somewhat predictably, shortly after the purchase, a military campaign led by the Duke of Mantua saw an army trample through his land as only an army can and destroy everything, including the farm. This was a disaster. He would be paying off the debt for the next 41 years. In 1641, Niccolo is now in his early 40s and a successful businessman, but he still has no children of his own to inherit the family business and continue the craft. In the workshop, he desperately needs help, and so for the first time, he breaks with tradition and looks for extra hands outside the family. <gasps> yes, he does. 
So a year after having his land flattened by the Mantuan Duke, we find Niccolo living with his sister, Elisabetta. Buongiorno. Who's 62. His niece, Angela, 31. Buongiorno. And his two teenage assistants. Their names are Giacomo Gennaro. Ciao. Who's 17 years old. And Andrea Guaneri, who is 15. Ciao. From now on, Niccolo's workshop would always have help from outside the family. He was making more and more violins and other instruments from the violin family. He was using his grand pattern model on and off during this time, experimenting with different shapes and sizes, outlines and archings. The decision to take on apprentices from outside the family would have a profound effect on violin making in Cremona. It would take it from being a one-shop town to a hub of instrument making. Niccolo gets over the plague, takes on apprentices, not family members because that never seems to work out, and then we start getting more and more skilled artisans and this thing grows and grows. And within 30 years you get to a point where he's taking on apprentices, where every city in Italy has got violin makers, every major city in Europe has got violin makers, and the violin has transformed partially because covered strings have made it so much easier to play, partly because of the repertoire that's already been growing for it, which to a point where, you know, by the time you get to 1660, it is, you know, the king of instruments. It's, it's, it's something that everyone's playing. And that's happened, you know, within a lifetime, this thing's transformed into its popularity. This is a time when royal courts were competing to have the best orchestras and violinists were being passed around the courts like footballers today in clubs. So with Niccolò Marti, you know, he's the first to take on apprentices. We've had a long, but the Ruggeri family, the Guaneri family, they're all, well, the Guaneri family are certainly apprentices. What Quite what the Ruggeri family are doing, they're not, they're a local family, you know, and it might just be that they didn't have to live in the same house as him. You know, why would they be on the census if, if they're doing that? And a whole load of other people seem to be coming in and out as apprentices who are not really, you know, very significant makers. We know that Niccolo had all of these apprentices because of the parish records made by the parish priests every year when they went from house to house filling out their census. So, for example, we have records of people living in Amati's home and working for him, but if someone was a local, they would not be on the census paper because they would be living in their own home. So for this reason, there is some doubt as to a few names of those who were his apprentices, and one of those being a local boy called Antonio Storivari. Possibly there, you know, there's Bartolomeo Cristofori who comes over from Florence and he's mostly a harpsichord maker. He invents the piano and there's a few double basses that he made. But maybe spending six months in the Amati workshop were kind of useful, particularly if he was supposed to be looking after the Amatis in the Medici courts. So there's all sorts of things happening. But with all these apprentices that we don't really know about, they're actually people who are going out to different parts of Italy and the world. They're coming out marketing, essentially, helping people to understand the importance of what the Amati workshop is, keeping the Amati tradition at the top and really allowing for, for prices. In 1685, 
uh, year actually after Niccolo dies. There's a uh, Vitali, the composer, has a has a lawsuit against somebody who has bought a violin for because he thought that he bought a, a Niccolo Marti, but there happens to be another label in it, and it's actually by Ruggeri. And he says, you know, I bought this, and the Namati is supposed to be worth twelve pistoles, and it's just a Ruggeri, and they're only worth four pistoles. And he wanted, you know, he wanted the difference back. And we can look at that. Was that straightforward fraud? Was that a Marti who he had a full order books? He could say. It was from the workshop. I didn't say who made yeah. it. I said it was from the Amati workshop. Exactly. He might have had a, a full order book. He might have sold it for four pistoles in the in the first place. There's so many things. I mean, ev- everyone writing about violin fraud has started with that as the outset. So here we have it, the beginning of a boom. Although Niccolo had a painful past to contest with, he appears to be going full steam ahead with his many apprentices, the most enduring of whom is the young, fresh-faced Andrea Guarneri, who will stay with Niccolo through thick and thin. Now, I hear you say Guarneri, but which Guarneri? Exactly. Well, the Guarneri family of violin makers are a story all in themselves. The lives of the Guarneris, the Ruggeris, the Amatis and the Stradivaris are all going to start overlapping very soon. So hold on to your seat and stay tuned for the next episodes. As I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, we have some wonderful Patreons supporting the podcast. And if you would like to join them, simply go now to Patreon forward slash The Violin Chronicles and you can sign up there. As a Patreon, not only will you have a warm, fuzzy feeling in the knowledge that you are helping to make things happen, but you will also have access to bonus episodes. We have a series of episodes on Patreon called My Encyclopedia of Luthiers, in which my husband, Antoine, and I recap each maker in under an hour, and we look briefly at their life and career and discuss all the characteristics of that particular luthier so that you have a checklist to start you on your journey to being an expert, or at least being able to tell a DeSalo from an Andrea if you have a chance to pick them up and look at them. I have also posted other extra episodes that you can check out as well if you want to peruse the page. Now I would like to say a big thank you to my guests, Benjamin Habit and Emily Brayshaw, for joining me today. And if you liked this show, please rate and give it a review. That is, in fact, very helpful. But for now, thank you for joining me, and until next time on The Violin Chronicles. (music) 